following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. I've turned uh, in my mind, and now I'm getting there actually, to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and I just want to thank you, Jim, for uh, welcoming me, and Craig, Darcy, thanks so much, and the team allowing me to come and be with you, and and uh, I'm, I've turned to the Bible. I'm about to read the Bible with uh, Lay's barbecue baked chips breath. Is that a Subway sandwich? And, uh, and I'm using these glasses uh, so that I can read. And uh, there used to be a time where I would stand up like this and I didn't have any glasses to read. Now I do. And... Uh, I'm thinking uh, it's about 9.42, two hours ahead in St. Louis, so uh, my oldest son, Nathan, has been off of work and probably at his girlfriend's family's house. Uh, Abigail has probably just gotten home from work. Caleb is probably online playing a video game with his cousin, Drew, who lives in Indiana, and uh, they're best buddies, and uh, Jessica hopefully is being able to slow down and watch Frasier or something like that, which is one of her favorite shows, and just sharing all that Sam, a human being, and I've opened to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and as we turn there, uh, the question of greatness is set in front of us. It's verse 13, Ecclesiastes 9. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard and quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Let's pray together. Our Lord, your book is open. We feel the fatigue in our bodies and in our minds from a good day. Ask for your spirit now. You would make much of Jesus. May you would draw us to yourself, Lord, according to the need you know we have. Thanks for letting us yawn. Thanks for not being mad or grumpy about it. Thanks for welcoming us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Did you see the word was repeated three times in the English translation of the ESV? It's great, great, great. Verse 13, I have seen this example of wisdom under the sun. It seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works. What's happening is greatness is being talked about, and two separate approaches to greatness is set before us. The one approach to greatness is a king who does a large thing in a very visible way, demonstrating his power as fast as he can. A large king picking on a little city with just a few people in it. Way to go. You want to say pick on someone your own size, huh? But here he is, a political leader willing to exercise his power wants to do a great thing in a visible way as fast as he can. And that is one approach to greatness. In contrast is this other way of greatness. It's pictured in this man of poverty who has no resources. He has no position. He has no status. He has no team to mobilize. uh, And yet he is the one who delivers this city. And in that picture, greatness is set in front of us. I'm telling you tonight a bit of a fool's story. 
if we were in a in a, a group together, and let's say it's Fools Anonymous, I'm the one standing up saying, Hi, my name is Zach. And you would say, Hi, Zach. And I would say, I've been a fool for 49 years. I'm a recovering fool. Jesus loves me. And I love him. And I'd like you to hear about him. But I have to say, my folly has come with this issue of greatness. I followed the path of the great king who besieged the little city with great siege works. Uh, I can't be too hard on myself in one sense, because this view of greatness is the view all around us. That if you want to do something great, and we would say, great for God, you must do something large, famous, fast in order to do a great thing for God. I didn't start out that way. Uh, when I started out in ministry, I, I vocational ministry, I was a seminary student. I was leading a youth group at a little tiny church. And uh, uh, I was just trying to learn. It was all about Jesus as best I can see. And, and uh, I just wanted to serve. I was just Zach from Henryville. I, I, in Indiana, I, I, I used to have a mullet. Uh, I still have the earring mark if you look close enough. And so I'm just wanting to serve him, you know. I had gone out to La Follette Field at Ball State University when I was in college. And I began to say to the Lord, I'd go out there at night and pray. And I would say, Lord, I want to serve you, and I'll go no matter where you send me. That's just what it was about. But somewhere along the line, this other way, this folly, this fool's way of greatness began to slip in. And you know where it slipped in was through the church. I've committed myself to congregations and church all my adult life. So when I say that, I speak as one who would defend her, as one within. And uh, how it started was, I remember my very first Presbyterian meeting. I just admitted I'm a Presbyterian. I'm very sorry. Uh, I can be persuaded. Uh, let's just talk. I'm just kidding. So <laughs> I'm just looking forward to being in heaven together. And... Uh, my very first Presbyterian meeting, which is a region, it's a region of uh, pastors and other kinds of lay leaders who gather together in the region. And here's what I noticed. I walked in with the, the church pastor that I was serving with. He was faithful in a small place trying to revitalize a difficult work. Imperfect person needed Jesus just like me. And when we came into the uh, gathering, he said hello to someone, another person, and then we just went and sat down. A little bit later, I noticed another person walked in and lots of people got up and went over to talk to that person. There seemed to be sort of a brouhaha about that person who was coming in. That's a southern Indiana term, maybe. I don't know where that comes from. Uh, he was walking in, and uh, people began to flock around this person and talk about, to this person and about this person. I, I came to learn later that that was the person who wrote books. That was the person who spoke at conferences. And I saw it. No one ever said it. But I saw it. The small church pastor that I was with, no one said a word. One or two people. Large church pastor comes in. Boom. Buzz. Large. Famous. Fast. And I think uh, a seed was born in my heart. And I began to think, yeah, I want to do something great for God. And I was no longer saying, send me wherever you want me to go. I was saying, I want to have a big impact. I want to have a large place. I want to speak all over the world. I want to make a difference in generations. Earnest things. Eventually, I became such a person. And I was doing an interview. 
from a, uh, one of the books that I wrote that won an award, national award. I was doing a radio interview. This is years later. And uh, you can listen to that interview. It's, it's online. It's not bad. Yeah. It's not bad. And, uh, but here's the thing. Here's what's haunting to me about it. I gave that interview from uh, a Benedictine retreat house in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. I'd lost 30 pounds and I'd lost hair. My hair was coming out. Because my wife of 15 years had walked away from God, walked away from me, and moved away so that the kids lived with me. And I had primary care of them. And I became a single dad with the daily care of three kids. I was in a Schnucks grocery store, which is a grocery store. And, uh, and I received a phone call uh, from preaching today that I had won that award. I was in sweatpants and a t-shirt buying milk and bread in the middle of the afternoon and some cereal probably for my kids. We've won this award. It was poise. Tim Keller's name on it. Other people's names on it. It was poise. I was ready. No, I wasn't. I was all wrong. I sat down and schnooked and cried. Not out of happiness, but the irony. I went home. The kids and I tried to find a little bit of sunshine day by day in a very dark world. I come to this passage, I never would have seen it as a younger person. If I saw it, I wouldn't have liked it. And it's saying that there's a kind of greatness that is applauded and visible. And there's a kind of greatness that is of a different kind. And I've been on a uh, a quest, a journey, uh, to learn a different way of greatness, the Jesus way, I hope. And it's really hard. It's just not natural to me. And it's not natural in the conversations around us. But there are five basic moves. And I won't take too long on each one. Five basic moves I can see that the Lord's been doing to move me from Symbolism from being a simpleton and a fool toward wisdom. Five basic moves that I hope will be of some help to you. The first is the move from reactivity to attentiveness. From reactivity to attentiveness. Verse 17, you see the contrast. The words of the wise heard in quiet. Words of the wise. Heard and quiet. 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 Words of the wise. In contrast to the shouting of fools. See the contrast there? Uh, from reactivity, movement, to quiet. You see, uh, when uh, those things first began, and when my wife at the time left, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to try to say this as tenderly as I can. I have lived my Christian life in a complementarian world. That means the default assumption was that as the husband goes, so goes the house. I'm speaking as humbly as I know how. And because of that, uh, I not only experienced the abandonment and trying to walk with the kids each day and having to look at myself as 
what kind of person must I be if the person who lives with me walks away from Jesus? We ask that as parents too, don't we? Not only that, but then I had very dear people who had known me for years opening the Bible to me. Tell me how I need to change. If I would just change, she wouldn't do this. And I'm sure there are situations like that. I don't mean to step on your toes. We're all adults. You can disagree with me. We'll be in heaven together. Maybe I'm not saying it right. I'm just trying to say there didn't seem to be a category that she was her own human being with her own soul before God. And when she would quote to elders, quote the Apostle Paul, if the unbeliever wants to leave, let him leave. She would say, I'm the unbeliever. You have to let me leave. That's not just, if I just had more family worship, that wouldn't have happened. Well, maybe you'll keep talking with me if you disagree. I'm just saying sometimes the double wound comes. The person goes through the thing itself. And then we add to it by letting them know if they had just been different, this wouldn't have happened to them. As if the other person has no will and they're just a puppet. And no human being is a puppet like that. Each of us are made in the image of God. And each of us are accountable before that Lord. And each of us carry our own load, as Paul said, before him. When that was happening, I began to defend myself. You ever, you ever done that? Defend yourself? Yeah, don't. Just don't do it. It's reactivity, pain, anger, accusation. I'm telling you everything I know. I remember being, uh, that's what I said in a restaurant. Uh, a group of fellow presbyters came in the name of pastoral care. That's what they told me it was. Pastoral care, just checking in, see how I'm doing. We got a table in the corner of the restaurant. It was a round table. I was in the corner, and those men were all around. And uh, they began to press me, interrogate me, because there had to be more, you see. It had to be that I had a secret, because women just don't do this. It has to be the man. So I'm lying somehow. It's not as apparent. It's, so they're trying to find the secret. I, I have a porn addiction. I'm, I'm having an affair. I'm, I'm, I'm some kind of, I have an anger problem. They're just trying to find out what the secret is. So they are pressing and pressing and pressing. And I remember yelling in the restaurant. I yelled, What do you want from me? I was right there in that moment in that restaurant with my oldest, watching the youngest too. Well, I could be away for an hour to get back to them. I've told you everything I can. Uh, years later, one of those men called, wrote to me and asked my forgiveness. Said that he was trying to do due diligence. He would have to answer the people. I always wondered, who, what people? I think I know. Scared that he would have to give an account to whoever it was. So I had to make sure he would rake me over the coal. And uh, later on, I said to a group of folks like that, you know what, if I had a secret, you guys were awesome. <laughs> you know how to do that. We know how to do that. We Presbyterians, even we call our... Uh, our uh, gathering of elders, a court. And the court was in session. And the shepherds don't know where we went. But in reactivity, I defend myself. 
and defending myself only could. I remember my pastor who had walked with me through the whole thing and the elders who were walking with our family. It's just that other elders out and about had a hard time trusting that our actual elders who knew us <laughs> were, were doing a good job. So we kept getting checked in on and all that kind of stuff. And I remember my pastor telling me, Zach, um, people are treating you like you have a broken arm. You're sitting there, both your legs are caught off and you're bleeding to death and they're treating you like you have a broken arm. And if you would just move your arm, then everything would be fine. Symbolism. Simplistic. Defending myself. Reactivity. Imaginary conversations. You know what imaginary conversation is, right? It's when, uh, I don't know, you're, you're walking and it started out as a prayer. <laughs> it's in, you know, it's direct address to God, third person about the, the, about the person, you know. God, uh, He, right? So it's prayer. And somewhere along the line, you're no longer talking to God. And the He has become you. You, 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 like that. And you're having a conversation with nobody. But you're all in. It's as if they're right there. And you're just trying to win. If I could just say it this way, if I could just say it that way, if I could just get it right, if they could just, if they could just, and you think the problem is your sentences. If I could just get the sentence right, she would stay. What kind of folly is that? If I could just quote the right verse, her, her problem was not the absence of biblical knowledge. If I could just quote the right verse, if I could just say the right thing. You know that uh, in, in an American, there's an American story, the little train who could. It's about this little train, and he's going to climb a big mountain, and he's having a hard time, but then he just says, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and so he does. <laughs> you know, there are some mountains in life, it doesn't how, matter how much you think you can, you can't. And what happens when you face that? What happens when a guy who's a professional talker, this is my gift, what happens when my words break no change? I can't defend myself. I can't organize sentences right to keep a person that I had loved and for trying to pursue and humble in any way I can. It's not working. No words are working. Uh, word is going around that there's a dark secret. I'm living in a fishbowl of slander and rumor. I had to take my son out of the local Christian high school and homeschooling. I'm homeschooling my seventh grader in the midst of walking through that together because he's Dr. S. Wine's son. For some reason, people are talking to him about that. Reactivity. I want to fight. I want to defend. I stop the slander. This isn't true. You know, years later, uh, five, six years later, I was reacquainted with a group of, of uh, old uh, people who I used to do life with. And all that time, they lived in the same community. They had no idea the kids lived with me. Rumor. Slander. I remember sitting in a courtroom. Uh, with uh, the church I pastored being accused of being a cult, me being accused of being a cult leader and a danger to my kids. About the most helpless, humbling thing. What do you do? What does a pitcher in baseball do when you, the other team's hitting your best stuff? You got a curveball, a fastball, and a slider, and the other team's popping them. What do you do? You sit down. And maybe for the first time in a long, long time, you say, 
Yes, Lord. Um, listen. The servant is listening. The words won't work. Emotions don't work. There's nothing you can do to work to fix it. Reactivity is moving from folly as the fool is constantly speed and movement and emotion and wah! And coming to a place of recognition that the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Jesus reaches into your reactivity. He comes to you like he did on, with that storm, and he says, right to your soul, your frenzied, frantic, explosive, defensive soul, and says, Moving from a reactive soul to an attentive one that's able to hear a word like behold and actually behold is a work of grace. I called a friend ten times in ten minutes. He didn't answer the phone. I knew they were there. So I called again. I called again. I, have you ever been there? So frenzied in your emotion that you are texting, you are emailing, you are noveling. Someone, uh, you send someone an email, they don't respond in three minutes. So you think something's wrong and you send it all the more. And then all the more. And everything speeds up. And all we're doing is multiplying words that have no power. To change what ails us. Reactivity to attentiveness, what Matthew Henry called the Sabbath heart. A residue from the Sabbath itself. Everything around us still swirls, but something inside has slowed down so that we are able to weather what comes of it. The second move is from consumerism to human presence or ordinary presence. Presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, -E, not the Christmas time. Consumerism to presence. The great king in verse 15, he's mobilizing everybody. He's leveraging everything. Leverage, mobilize for the sake of conquering. Well, that's been a part of my life. <laughs> Using people rather than loving them so that I could leverage gospel things. And you know what that means? Is It means that um, I could uh, take a picture of all of us right now and of myself And put it on some materials and use you. Use you for my own platform. And consume you without loving you. And you know that you can consume me without loving me. You can consume any speaker. Get the resource without relationship. Use the resource, making sure they better keep saying everything right. The way we talk, the way I've learned to talk about this now in, in uh, among us is, uh, in our leadership team is I'll say there, there are three kinds of decision making as leaders. There's emergency room decision making, there's boardroom decision making, and then there's just the shepherd thing. 
I don't have a better name for it. I got to come up with something. That's a joke. So emergency room, emergency room values uh, immediacy and relief. So you go to the emergency room, their whole goal is immediately to relieve you in order to stabilize you so they can figure out stuff later. Right? Immediacy and relief. Whew. Thankfully, we need that. My youngest has a peanut allergy. I'm thankful for emergency room action of immediacy and relief. Boardroom, BR. Boardroom, efficiency and quantity. Efficiency and quantity. Most amount of productivity for the least amount of buck. That's awesome. Oh, in a church, we got budgets and stuff. It's good to figure that out. Here's the problem. If emergency room becomes the norm, then a church is always in crisis. Reactivity. Always in crisis, consuming reactivity. Creating crisis even when there isn't any. Uh, there's no proportionality. Everything that happens is huge. Right? Right? Uh, you wouldn't know where to go from there. Uh, the, the children's ministry didn't work out the way you wanted it to. Wah! Crisis! Man, what are you going to do when someone dies? Like, if you're using that much emotion for the children's decision, I mean, you're already right there. What happens when something really bad happens? Where do you go? You're already using it all. It's like everything's a crisis. On the flip side is the boardroom. That's really awesome. But the problem is that the Lord Jesus rarely brings immediate relief. And the Lord Jesus doesn't seem to be worried about money like we are. And he's not very efficient. I'm just going to let that sit there. I know he knows what I mean. I'm hoping you know. He's not. The Lord doesn't relate to you to get the most production for the least amount of money. He doesn't relate to you like that. If he was more efficient, there would have been stuff I'm just learning in my 49th year. It seems like I should have learned that a little while ago. Would have been helpful, you know. Uh, the Lord is the kind of Lord who will spend 30 years in a carpenter shop learning the names of trees. What is that about? Theologians call that the years of obscurity. And then there's the years of popularity. And funny, I like that. I like that years of, besides the crucifixion stuff, I like that years of popularity. Years of obscurity. You know, I'm thinking if the Lord was 20, I don't know. How do we know? I'm just, I'm thinking if he's 20 and he's building a table, he's got sawdust in his beard. And if you were to say to them, you know, so where are you from? I'm from the eternal residence of the living God. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he would just say from Nazareth, where are you from? What's he doing there? I mean, Herod did a lot of bad things when Jesus was a boy. Why didn't he, like, get the 13, get the mitzvah, and get after it? What, what, what is he waiting for? What if when he says, take up your cross and follow me, what if he doesn't start with the years of popularity when he means that? What if he means the entirety of his life? His ordinary life, trees, tables, sawdust, skin knees, parents who don't understand, family dynamics, figuring that out, you know? He's not leveraging anything. Here's the thing. So if you're a leader in ministry, let me ask you this question. If I take away from you immediacy and relief, efficiency and quantity, you no longer have those to use, what's left? Your presence. You. Your eye contact. Your appropriate touch. Your tears. Your laughter. 
the prayers, the open book. Some of us are mobilizing, 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 but we're really just consuming people to leverage them to get something else. Which means I'm, I'm told I constantly have to mobilize you to become some, somebody other than who you are to get you somewhere other than where you are to do something other than what you're doing. Which means who you actually are already where you actually are already and what you're actually doing already doesn't matter. But it seems to me that when you remove all this stuff, uh, we're just offering our presence, which is what our Lord Jesus did. He just offered His presence. Now there's no leverage. This man is a poor man. He has no resources. There's nothing you can... There's no networking power with him. There it was founded in a poor wise man. It's not a metaphor. He's actually poor. He's just got no networking power. There's nothing you can use him for. But he's wise. And he can deliver you. Do you want it? If he has nothing you can use, all he has is himself and the wisdom you need for rescue. In the quiet. Will you choose it? Because the king will overlook you. And other people will overlook you. C.S. Lewis called this the inner ring. The inner ring. It's just what we had on the playground in kids' at school, you know. I want to be in your group so badly that I will do whatever I know you approve of in order to get in your group. And I'll be sure not to do anything I know you don't like to make sure I'm in your group. Which means you're not now loving me and I'm not now loving you as you actually are. What we're doing now is maneuvering. I have a club. This is what you have to do to be in our club. Rather than, who are you? What's your life been like? What frustrations do you have? What desires? What, what longings are in your life? What do you think about God? What do you think about His promise? None of that's asked. And we're consuming. But you stripped that away and all you got is just you. Man, I, just me. I was sitting there looking in the mirror. I had gotten the laundry out. I was coming over and I looked in the mirror. And I realized I had lost hair and lost weight and I started to cry. I'm holding like underwear and stuff. I'm starting to cry. At that moment, my youngest son, who completely started over with potty training, came down and uh, poured grape juice right on the carpet. He had a lot to deal with, too. How does a four-year-old express it? And at that very moment, I'm crying, holding underwear. He pours the grape juice on the carpet. And my bright idea to get a dog to help all of us The dog comes running in from outside where he's just eating something and he just vomits. Blah! <laughs> right, there on the, right there on the floor. That's what I have to offer. <laughs> Nobody called me for conferences then. Nobody called me then. From consumerism just to our presence. I'm Zach, son of Vern, son of Jan, from Henryville, Indiana. 
I used to have a mullet and an earring, and I'd go out of the fallout field of Ball State University and cry out to God to use me in the generation. I'm a guy who sought after greatness of the wrong kind, trying to be in an inner ring, and there holding underwear with the grape juice and the vomit. I had to come to terms with this question. Does the Lord love me? It's not about consumerism. He's not leveraged. Nothing to leverage. I got nothing now. Does, does he love me just as a human being, as a single dad, a kid trying to learn how to use a crock pot? Because I went to McDonald's so many times and I switched over from McDonald's to Subway, so that was better. <laughs> Finally, someone gave me the idea, you need a crock pot. I feel like a crack pot. No, you need a crock pot. <laughs> and then there's from hurry to patience, from reactivity to attentiveness, from consumerism just to ordinary presence, from hurry to patience. Most things in life, this guy wants to say large, famous, fast. Everything around you is saying, you got to do something large, famous, and fast if you want to be something great for God. But most things in life that really matter require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. Yeah? All right, think it out with me. You want to learn how to play the piano? Well... Small, mostly overlooked, long period of time. You want to learn how to paint. You want to learn how to uh, be an expert in your field. You want to have a marriage that thrives. Small, mostly overlooked, parenting. Small, mostly overlooked, long period of time. Friendship, the kind of friendship that lasts. Forgiveness. Small, mostly overlooked, long period of time. Learning the books in the Bible for the first time. Getting through sickness. Getting through a sickness that's chronic. Loving someone. Bearing with, hoping with, enduring with. It isn't large, famous, fast, click, selfie, leverage, boom. It isn't that way. In order, in order to experience love and to give it, it's going to be a lot of small, Overlook things that over a long period of time accumulate into something. It's, it's patience. It's this. Here's the thing. If you look in the scripture, the word haste is almost always equated with folly. Look it up. You can check it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Haste and hurry are almost always associated with folly in the Bible. <laughs> and look up the word slow. And it's almost always used to describe the character of God. He's slow to anger. And when he's not slow in his keeping his promises, but it sure seems slow. Slow. Thirty years in a carpenter shop, slow. In hurry to patience. There's some things you just can't fix. Not immediately. I remember, uh, uh, I can't, I remember being on a porch as a pastor, and a, a young girl was on the porch. She had run away. We were out looking for her. She was on the porch, curled up in her pajamas. Mom had the door closed, wasn't going to let her in. Why? Because dad's on the phone telling mom, don't let her in. Tough love. Mom is bawling her eyes out, telling the girl that ran away, who's curled up in her pajamas on the porch, that she won't let her in. We've been looking, looking, looking. We finally found her right there on the porch. Let me ask you a question. What do you say? What sentence can you say to fix that? You can't fix her anorexia with a sentence. 
You can't fix the dynamic with the husband and the wife and figuring out tough love in a sentence. You can't. It's going to take a lot of not just sentences, but silences. The ordinary presence and a lot of patience. Here's the thing. You were never meant to fix everything. And you were never meant to know everything. And you're never meant to be everywhere at once. Someone who can fix everything, theologians call that omnipotence. Someone who can know everything, theologians call that omniscience. Someone who can be everywhere at once, theologians call that omnipresence. And who have we just described? God. You were never meant to fix everything. You shouldn't repent because you can't fix everything. You don't have to repent because you can't fix everything. You have to repent because you're trying to. You're trying to do what only God can do. You don't have to repent because you don't know everything. Only God knows everything. You have to repent for trying to know everything. You don't have to repent because you can't be everywhere at once. You have to repent because you've been trying to. And I know someone saying, aha, I can be everywhere at once. I can tweet and I can blah, 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 and blah, 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 and I can send out my blah, 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 and I'll say yes, but your rump is still in one place in the globe, on one chair, and your fingers are on one keyboard and not any other keyboard in the entire galaxy. Don't buy the illusion. The real you can only be at one place at one time. And that leads us from rootlessness to stability, reactivity to attentiveness, consumerism to human presence, hurry to patience, from rootlessness to stability. This guy can't go anywhere. <laughs> he has to stay. He has to stay in the city. He's going to have to go through by staying where he is. Uh, um, one of the skills that you and I have learned is how to get somewhere. Our culture is built on it. Teaches you how to get somewhere. Especially if you're in a white-collar world, teaches you how to get somewhere. Well, you went to kindergarten in order to get to, excuse me, elementary school. You went to that, that Subway sandwich. You went to just being real. So you went to elementary school in order to get to junior high. You went to junior high in order to get to high school. You went to high school to get your first job. Not your last job, you hope. Your first job, which will lead to another job. You went, or you went to college. Not to stay there, but to get your first job. Or to go to schooling even more. Or you went into the military. All, of your, all you're doing is going from one thing to, and you've learned. You have learned how to move. You have learned how to start a new thing. You've learned how to move from one thing to another. You have that set of skills. But it takes a completely different set of skills to stay there once you get there. One of these years, you're going to get where you're going and there's nowhere else to go. Now what? Before, if you didn't like the way it was, you could just move. Rearrange your geography, rearrange your... But what if you're in a city and you're going to have to stay there? I'm not now talking about those of us in dangerous situations who need a plan and a community to get us out. I'm talking about I'm a single dad at that time with three children and there's nothing changing. That's the way it's going to be. It isn't what I asked for. It's now what my life is. There's no way around that unless I want to go off the rails too. Announce my role. Reject blessing. So the only way out, as Alanis Morissette once said, is through. The skill sets you need to stay somewhere is you've got to come to terms with boredom. You need a hefty theology of boredom. You need a theology of beauty. 
I love these purple trees. I, I've never seen that in my life. I, we don't have them in Missouri. I have never seen a purple tree. Jacaranda or something like this? Yeah, I've never seen it in my life. Can I tell you, as a younger man, I never would have noticed or cared. Because what does it have to do with getting me where I need to go? But now it just doesn't get any better in life. What else is this? I mean, really, what else? God created that tree. It's incredible. There's no waste of time to say, wow, Lord, that is vivid. That's amazing. To be able to stay in a place over a long period of time, you have to learn to derive pleasure from small, mostly overlooked things that God delights in. You have to come to terms with the fact that we get bored with things that don't bore God. He just delights in seeing the same old person, making the same old tree. G.K. Kesterson said it this way, what if God doesn't make all daisies alike because he ran out of ideas? What if he makes all daisies alike because he enjoys them so much? What if the sun rises every day, Chesterton said, not just because of some mechanical thing, but the Lord delights in it so much that he says, do it again. Chesterton says, what if God is like the child who you've just read the book to before bed, and they say, can we read it again? And then you finish it, can we read it again? And the distinction becomes clear. You and I are now bored, and they aren't. The pleasure of the story is enjoyable. They just see the goodness of it. Wow. Let's do it again. And Chesterton said, what if that's like God? He just delights every day in doing small, ordinary things again. Because they're so meaningful. And to be in one place over a long period of time is to, or be in a place where you don't want to be, but that's not an interruption. It's what you're actually, your life is. Is You have to learn the skill of forgiveness. And you have to learn the living days without being fixed. You begin to learn the names of trees. And how to use ramen noodles with pineapple and some kind of stuff. You can make a Hawaiian ramen noodle. You don't even need a crock pot. And someone says, oh, that's not spiritual. I'm like, man, that's my life. Are you telling me God's not there? Because he's all I'm holding on to right now. No, you need to do something larger, bigger, faster for God. And I just imagine uh, Adam comes home from a long day at work. I'm stereotyping. Adam comes home from a long day at work. Eve's been there. He comes in, he sits down, puts his shovel over. Eve, I've just got to get out of this place. I was made for something more, Eve. I can just feel it. I just want to do something significant for God. And that's exactly what they did. Listen, you were given a place to be a people to love in that place, and a thing to do. And that was the great thing God created. That was all that was necessary to glorify Him. Huh. You didn't have to be somebody else other than you are. You don't have to be somewhere else other than you are. You don't have to do something else other than you are. Be in a place, love the people there, do the thing He gave you to. It's a good life. It's enough. It takes a lot of effort to do that. Boredom, love, mundane joy, routine, rhythm, bearing with, reactivity, 
the desire for consumerism, the desire for hurry, this feeling of rootlessness. And finally, this movement from performance to grace. Oh, man, verse 15. There was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. They gave him a key to the city. They hoisted him up. They made a statue. They declared a day in his honor. He went on a book tour. He was famous, made millions. I can't believe the sentence there in verse 15. Can you? Yet no one remembered that poor man. That epitaph would be, you know, on the tombstone, here lies a man that saved the city that forgot him. And Solomon says, this is great. Some of you are working really hard wondering what your legacy is. Trying to be remembered. Me too. No one's going to write about this movie. Maybe somebody will. But we're not going to be in Time Magazine or something. We're going to disperse and go back home. And in a couple of years, we all won't quite remember. Was so-and-so there? Was that the year that Esplan was there? Or was that no? Your great hope isn't being remembered. Your great hope is that the Lord remembers you every day of your life. So that when you're standing in a mirror holding on to where, and your dog vomits, and your child trying to figure out what to respond, or the grape juice on the cup, you don't have to get somewhere else for God to be with you. He's there already. Because the Lord Jesus paid for our reactivity to give us his attentiveness. He paid for our leveraging and consuming people to teach us presence and love. The Lord Jesus paid for all of our haste and hurry to deliver us from it so we could patiently live. The Lord Jesus paid for our rootlessness, constant restlessness, so that we could learn how to be in a place with the people, with the thing to do, and to feel grateful for it. And the Lord Jesus delivers us from our performance. Eventually, eventually, uh, I was called to be a pastor at a church, Riverside Church. I was a single dad with three kids probably the only church in America that would do this. And truth be told, we'd all say we wouldn't do that again. And we'll laugh together. <laughs> because there's a lot to ask. Uh, when I came to Riverside Church, there were a number of seminary students, local seminary students in the church. When they heard that I was going to be the pastor, they stood and applauded. Two years later, none of those, not one of those students were still in the congregation. Those who counseled me said this, Zach, it's one thing for people to have encountered your persona, to see you at your best when you're in classroom or you're in the office or you're preaching and teaching. It's another thing for them to encounter your real self. As a single dad with three kids who's a mess. You couldn't handle the disconnect. It would have required them to love you. And you would have had to love them, not consume each other. Well, that's a lot to think about. And uh, our church went from 300 people down to about 75. Still want me? <laughs> and that was 2008. Financial crisis. We lost a whole lot of money, had to let full-time people go. I wanted to quit. I told the elders I resigned. 
all their friends were leaving. I, I didn't want to do that to anybody. What am I doing wrong? I'm too broken, I guess. And a lot to ask for a young congregation. Ty Sweeterman said to me, Jack, we don't want you to resign. We think we need to weather this. We're about 75 now, you know. I mean. And then he said this, if, if, I, if we have to turn the lights out on this church, it'll be you and me doing it together. So I'll tell you what, for a person that was in the midst of full-on a self-abandonment, in a community, in a church culture, in my own family, that grown man looked me in the eye and said, I'm sticking with you through thick and thin. When I was interviewed by that search committee about being the pastor there, I said no. Then I said no again. Then I said no again. And finally I said, listen, I don't know how to be a single dad, much less a pastor and a single dad. I don't know how to do it. And they said, we don't know how to do it either, but we're willing to learn with you. Now, a lot of those folks couldn't, couldn't fulfill that earnest desire they left. But a core group of people, the leaders who had started that church, all the core leaders, none of them left. And that's how they talked to me. We have to turn the lights out. We'll do it again. And my grown life as a person, just named Zach from Henryville, I never experienced a man talking to me like that. Not in the worst part of life that I will be with you through thick and thin. The closest is a very dear mentor and friend who has always reminded me that I'm already discovered and already loved by him. And so are you. No one remembered that poor man. So it's all about grace. And finally, when uh, a woman at the church, her name is Jessica, still is, very active in the church in all kinds of ways. I had told the, the elders when I first came, I, I, can, I, just, I can't date, I, I can't do anything like that. I don't trust myself. I, I'm worried about my kids. I can't do anything like that. If something like that ever comes up, you'll have to tell me. You'll have to tell me. So I went to them, and I said, there's a woman in our church. I'm feeling weird. We're just talking real easy. And I'm starting to not sure if I'm supposed to repent as a pastor. I'm just trying to pray. What, what's happening? I said, if this was some other ordinary thing in life, I'd probably just say, hey, do you want to get coffee or something? And they said, who was it? I said, Jessica Stoney, Ty Sweeterman looked at Brian Janice. They looked at each other. They smiled. They turned back to me and they said this. Remember when you said we'd need to tell you who to date? I said, yes. They said, Jessica Stoney is the one woman in our congregation we would wholeheartedly commend. We think you should. I said, well, okay, thank you. I think I'm just going to back away. <laughs> that is a little too spooky for me. <laughs> they called me up one week later. These are elders. Presbyterian elders. I've already told you about how I was related to by other Presbyterian elders. I'm encountering a different kind of elder. Not in terms of their commitment to Scripture, but in the terms of their way they're living out grace and the gospel and the implications of costly love. He calls me and he says, it's just coffee. We think you should go. Well, I did. And of course, we had to do it like 007, because if someone just saw us out, the rumors would start. I'm tired of rumors, right? And all that. So we met uh, 40 minutes away <laughs> at 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And the elders knew it. Their wives knew it. Our team knew it. My kids knew it, because I had my oldest too, because I'd asked them, how would you feel if I went on a date? They were involved in that whole thing. And... 
well, we're married now. And so, yeah. So the very first, uh, this is early, this is where I'll finish. We're, we're early in our marriage. That was 10 years ago. We're early in our marriage, and uh, I'm called out. There's a crisis call. Um, I'm heading out the door as a pastor, uh, you know, to go to pastoral care. Jessica says, hey, hey, wait, wait. And I said, what? You know, and she comes over there, and I'm at the kitchen door, and she just, I mean, she kisses me like we're married. So, and then she looks me in the eyes and she says, Zach, you are a son of the king. Go get him. I'm learning grace from her. From performance to grace. Your identity is already established, Zach. Before you walk out the door, no matter what happens in the coming minutes, you're already the king's son. So get after it. <laughs> well, we've been trying to ever since. Who is, after all, the poor wise man who delivers the city? I just think it's a picture of Jesus. Didn't he come in his poverty to deliver us? He isn't remembered are known as some of us know because he's been so kind and so faithful to overcome our reactivity and our consumerism, our hurry, our rootlessness, our performance, and to work in us attentiveness, presence, patience, stability, and grace. This is what he does, and this is why we have hope. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us tonight. Thank you for all day. We ask now that you would continue to open our hearts to you. And any of us here who needs to ask you anything, you'd be willing, as you always are, to so kindly give us hope that you will hear us. We thank you for your kindness that leads us to repentance. And we thank you that you weep with us when we weep. And you rejoice with us when we rejoice. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.